Okay, so we have a new episode of Legends and Leaders, and today it's great to have Xavier. I know you're the co-founder and CEO of Lightrix. You guys have taken on this initiative to really go and transform um, the photo video editing space, now with AI, being at the forefront of AI with, with, um, with the space, offering customizations. But you know, early on with what you guys did with Facetune, um, it, tra- it changed the industry. It became the most downloaded app um, on Apple in 2017. You know, you got, your apps have been downloaded over 600 million times. And they've really shaped what the photo editing space looks like today on mobile and helped and helped and gave a lot of people the opportunity to customize photos in the ways they wanted to with pro tools for people that maybe weren't able to access those types of tools. So I'm excited to have you here and to get into your story. Awesome. So where did your you know passion for um, getting into this space come from? You know, were you ever really inspired as a kid to be into entrepreneurship or photo editing? Like, how did this kind of passion start? My interest in pixel started before academia as a kid. I started, you know, like programming, writing uh, small games, etc. So that 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 was been like my passion since I guess I was nine, ten years old. <laughs> it was a while ago, and. Uh, during my PhD, I kind of spent some time in research departments of various companies like Microsoft Research, Adobe Research. So that's how I kind of became exposed as the kind of more professional world of toolmaking. And uh, I think what happened is that uh, we kind of gradually started to realize that you know, the mobile arrived, that uh, there's like this new cool thing. and uh, we can do something kind of really meaningful there. Anyhow, like back to your question, I think for me it was kind of initially less of entrepreneurship, more of you know, creating cool things in uh, <laughs> spaces that I'm kind of really passionate about. And uh, the entrepreneurship part was actually mostly due to our CTO and one of the co-founders, Jerome. He told me at some point, "Well, I wanted to be CTO since I was like, four years old or something." <laughs> and uh, yeah, like. So kind of it took a while, but I think the inspiration came. So how did you meet the other four other co-founders? I mean, you guys were all you know in kind of the same area, but how did you kind of come up with, hey, we should go start a business together here and build something um, and bootstrap it? Yeah, so like we're like a really big co-founding team, like four of us near Yaron, Amit, and I. We are doing our computer science PhD, and I was clerk in the Supreme Court of Israel back then. And uh, all of us already kind of uh, had some kind of past together. So near our CMO and I uh, did our army service together. So we are, you know, by now friends for twenty-something uh, years. Yaron, I met at some point when again I was already doing my PhD, and he was finishing his undergrad st- studies. So he wanted to like an advisor for one of his undergraduate projects. And that's how we met him. Hmm. Amit, one of the other co-founders, he was military intelligence with Yaron in the army. And <laughs> it ties <laughs> well. So all of us kind of uh, knew each other to this or that degree before the start of the company. And for me personally, like even like before Lightrix, I was very, very excited to work with Yaron, our CTO. Because since like this, this initial project that 
I kind of advised, I saw that the guy is just like really a phenomenal kind of developer, programmer. And uh, when we kind of started to think about entrepreneurship of startups, frankly, the kind of computation I did was like, okay, this guy is like, <laughs> you, know, you know, 10 really good programmers. So we basically don't need to raise any capital because, you know, he's just going to do most of it. And yeah, so that, that's how we started. Initially, we didn't raise any money. Decided kind of to bootstrap the company worked pretty well for us. So anyhow, I think I'm kind of rushing forward. So, so you're bootstrapping the company. You know, you're putting it together yourselves. How long did it take to get to the first version of your first product that was really functional and that people liked, and you know, there was value from it? So, I think for us initially, like the idea wasn't around kind of phase two more. Okay, we have like this skills coming from our academic. Uh, Kind of background, let's figure out what kind of cool things we can do with it. So, and obviously, again, like foreign video space was kind of a natural fit because a lot of the, I mean, some of the research that we did was kind of around 3D rendering and, and we did some computer vision, but most of it was you know, image processing and video processing, etc. And uh, we had like a bunch of kind of ideas initially that quickly created like a prototype, show it to people. And we didn't see a whole lot of excitement. I can even do like one example. Again, go kind of 10 years back, kind of like iPhones, foreign video, App Store, it was like really the beginning. So back then, we had like this idea well, maybe let's create an app that allows people to just take better uh, photos during kind of uh, night conditions, right? Uh, these days, you have things like that kind of baked into the built in iPhone camera, but back then, it was like uh, Kind of big thing, so we thought, well, you know, we're going to create like this cool app. We basically, want to take kind of a bunch of photos and then want to kind of uh, create one high quality photo out of them. And from kind of academic perspective, it is a cool idea. There is a bunch of research around this area, and there are some cool computer vision algorithms they needed to implement back then in order to make it happen. Kind of how to align a bunch of different photos together, how to merge them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we kind of created the prototype and we thought, well, it's going to be cool. We're going to market it to people who are kind of going to parties, trying to snap photos at night and then whatever. And when we kind of tested this idea, like we just didn't see a whole lot of excitement because when we asked, actually asked the person who unlike us goes to the parties at night, he always listen, um, if I'm taking a picture, I don't like it. I'm just taking another picture. Like, why do I need, you know, like a special app and like all, all this stuff? So I think kind of luckily for us, we kind of try to go kind of see if people are actually interested in our prototypes early on. And what happened with Facetune is that like one of the prototypes, the one we actually weren't like so excited about initially, was basically like a mobile implementation implementation of what was known in Photoshop, like in the professional software, is a liquefied tool for, for decades, right? And uh, we kind of were most interested in this product because it was kind of cool to port this interaction where you're kind of warping the edges of the image to mobile. But then what happened is that someone loaded like a self into this prototype and <laughs> The girl who was using like uh, this prototype, she kind of tweaked her nose and we just like saw the reaction and we were like, whoa, wait a second. And then I kind of realized it was the kind of weird moment that I think 
here our kind of academic background is actually obscured our kind of world understanding. You kind of realize that a lot of people back then, when I looked, for example, kind of magazine covers, etc., they actually thought that it represents reality, right? Like for people like me, you know, who spent some time in Adobe research, it was kind of clear if you're seeing something on the magazine cover. <laughs> At the very best, it represents some kind of artistic vision of some photographer and, you know, someone who edited the picture after. Definitely, you know, not real, real pixels. So anyhow, once we kind of saw that and we realized, whoa, wait a second, maybe there is like an opportunity here to take like this uh, retouching tools that so far we're uh, kind of mostly in the professional world and make them kind of widely available. So we created a bunch of other prototypes. Like, small tools that allowed kind of people kind of quickly to brush up their skin and you know whiten teeth and stuff like that and just like the reaction was great so i think from the moment that we created like this first prototype until we actually released the first version of facetune it took us i would say uh like five six months something like that and it kind of felt a lot right because again we're like mm -hmm. students uh, not, not in a great financial situation. So, you know, just like sitting at home and working on some app while you're learning all the mobile technologies, etc. It took a certain toll, especially when your parents and all, you know, other nice people okay. around you think that's, that, that's what you left your PhD for. Um, so anyhow, but that, that took around five, five, six months or so. And uh, yeah, then we released the first version of Facebook. So you, you put the first version out. How do you go and gain traction for it? Was it just word of mouth? I mean, did you? I mean, you had a limited, you know, limited budget to build it. Like you didn't have this big marketing budget to go out and you know push it out. Like how did you start getting a lot of traction for it? Listen, it was the budget was extremely limited. But not only that, we initially we got a little bit lucky because once we put kind of first version out back then, Apple were like doing promotions for new apps and. Unlike now, again, back then, a lot of people were just like browsing the app store to see kind of what's new and cool. Like mobile was like really, you know, new, cool, shiny thing back then for, I don't know, AI, VR, creative, and all these things. So uh, we got like a really nice promotion for Apple that uh, generated some like uh, initial revenues for us, like really, I don't know, like in the thousands in the first couple of days. But we're like terribly smart. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of partied a little bit, went to a restaurant, bought a fancy wine and all that. And our CMO near tells us that we basically left him like $500 for marketing, which obviously wasn't a ton. Um, <laughs> but back then, Nier were like, was able to... So Nier's background, maybe it's kind of worth mentioning, he is in a kind of artificial intelligence, so he's coming less from the background of computer graphics and image processing. So kind of early on, we decided that he's going to try to figure out how to sell the pixels that we're creating. And like he had like this like really cool idea to try to build, build a model. So, and again, we need to go back 10 years. Like App Store like in paid in, for paid apps has like these rankings. And the paid apps so back then already had like kind of less volume than freemium apps. And we were like a paid app. It's like a more simple model. And uh, he decided to create like this model where you kind of predict where you're going to be in the ranks of the app store and how much organic traffic is going to drive you. 
And in order to kind of calibrate this model, the Epster was split across, still split across different geos. He started like in the really small countries. I think the first country, I need to ask him, but I believe it was something like a Kazakhstan, you know, like a really kind of small country with not a huge app store. So he was a kind of a advertising there. And back then, Facebook just started with, with their like mobile uh, app install ads that like very kind of very new. So Nero was able to kind of figure out how much traffic, like how much paid downloads it requires to go up and then start getting organic downloads. So he calibrated this model of the small countries, kind of got some positive ROI. Again, initially it came with hundreds of dollars that moved it to a bigger country, $1,000, et cetera. At some point he calibrated model like really well. He told us, listen guys, I think I'm ready to do like this huge burst campaign in the United States. And, um, but like in order to, for the model to work, I really need like a, different scale of uh, marketing budget. And again, I don't remember what it was. It, I think it was like, I don't know, $100,000 or half a million dollars, but something crazy like that for us. Like really didn't have that kind of cash. So <laughs> we didn't understand like venture financing uh, back then. So we just like went to our uh, local bank and asked them, listen, guys are willing to loan us. <laughs> and, uh, like this money and uh, they really weren't. Related to that. So, anyhow, long story short, we like really need to ask a lot of friends and family and whatever to get kind of some money in. But like Nier's bet worked extremely well. So it was like amazing kind of first campaign. So Face Soon came out, I don't know, I think it was like April or something like that, 2013. And already in the first year after Nier figured out like this uh, kind of cool way to do marketing around paid user acquisition. I think it's already, we're able to generate that, I don't know, like two, three million dollars in the first years. Mm -hmm. But what did you wind up getting together, like, you know, financially for the marketing budget initially? So, no, I'm not kidding. I think that he, he started with $500 or something. No, it was, it was uh -huh. the fact that it worked is, uh, Really kind of huh. obviously look, he he invested that, got some money back, invested more and more and more. And but yeah, we, we didn't have any venture backing back then, so we had to kind of grow the whole thing on profits from the app. So er, early on, like subscriptions were rolled out. You guys were one of the first companies to do subscriptions through Apple. You know, I think initially Facetune it was four dollars for the app, and then it changed to subscription. I mean, how impactful was it on the business having subscriptions because you could kind of have people go in for free um, initially? Like, was that really substantial? Oh, oh my God. It was extremely substantial. So it's like, <laughs> what happened is that I think by 2015, we already had like two successful apps on the App Store. It was Facetune and Enlight. And Enlight was really like very well received by Apple. It got Apple the Editor's Choice Award on the app of the year. So these two apps constantly were like the top 10 paid kind of apps in the US. And the amount of revenue we got this year, I think it was around like $10 million. And again, it sounds obviously maybe cool for, for a bootstrap company, but we kind of realized, wait a second, it clearly, clearly shows the kind of limit of the opportunity, right? Because 
if we already kind of constantly have two apps in the top 10, like how we're going to grow from 10 to $100 million in revenues. So we realized that we need to switch to a freemium model. And freemium was already like huge in the app structures of games, et cetera. The thing is, uh, we weren't like figure out, and I don't think anyone figured out how you're like taking this gaming in a purchases model and adapted to tools. Uh, so we kind of uh, decided that we really need to bet that some some point kind of uh, our business model will be available in the App Store. We had like really early on a good relationship with Apple, so we kind of it's every opportunity to try to be very vocal that in order to build kind of a more mature software ecosystem around the App Store, in order to be, build kind of more serious software, other business models need to be there. And I guess at some point, you know, uh, our voice and voice of other developers were heard. In 2016, uh, WWDC Schiller announced that uh, the business model is going to change. We were kind of really early on part of the PR, Apple's PR around that. So that was kind of really cool. And uh, in, in terms of the impact, it was huge. Like we were able to scale, you know, like way beyond $100 million revenues because of this business model. Hundreds of million dollars now, and it's kind of mostly coming from like, this change in the business model. Since then, again, we, as a company, matured and, you know, like acquired businesses and tried to diversify, et cetera. But for us, like this transition from one business model to another was like really peak. So you mentioned initially, you know, you didn't have venture capital to start, very limited resources to build. You then decided, I think after two years or so, to be able to do a round of 10 million. Um, and it, you, you, you kind of had that lead. How did you determine the right partner there to work with? Um, and why did you think that that was the right time to go and, and raise capital um, to go and finance further operations? It's an excellent question, like ties in directly to what we kind of discussed before. So we kind of realized that in order to make freemium model work, we'll need a venture capital because with paid apps, things are kind of simple. You're running a campaign, getting kind of some money back, you're, and then you're getting kind of no money. So like the whole business is very simple. It's really easy to figure out if you're a right positive or not. The freemium model, it's, it's a different beast. Like people download the app for free. Some of them subscribe or start paying you after a month, after a year, sometimes after two or three years, et cetera. So typically what you do, you're doing like a user acquisition that's uh, in the first month or Kind of even more is not a right positive. And in order to make these models work, you need kind of to wait more. You need some kind of capital to bridge this gap between initial user acquisition and uh, a kind of uh, getting some of the LTV of the user back. Um, so we decided like we just uh, need financial back in order to do that. We didn't have kind of enough, enough cash on the balance sheet in order to kind of pull it off. So um, we met a lot of investors, and with uh, Viola Ventures, like the first investor there, like very prominent fund here in Israel that invested in us, we already kind of had an ongoing relationship. Like I met Danny, the partner that invested in us with Shlomo, the founder of the fund, I would say like year and a year and a half before the deal. We already kind of knew them. We even tried to close a kind of a smaller deal before. And 
in the end of the day, it was kind of a combo of, you know, terms, personal relationship with the kind of partners, alignment around where we want to take the company already. Then we started to discuss that, okay, now we're like a nice bootstrapped operation that makes $10 million, but then we want more. So it means, for example, that we're not going to profitable next year because we're going to start investing in new models, et cetera, et cetera. So they're like... Uh, uh, Obviously, a lot of discussions around where the company wants to go. And I think um, in the end of the day, it's like really hard to predict your relationship with kind of your capital partners because obviously around around everyone, everything is kind of nice and happy. And uh, I think like most of the companies, even most successful ones are going to have like ups and downs on their journey. I actually think like the personal relationship and... Uh, you know, making sure that you are like really starting to work with people who just like being like enjoying being around because you know, you're really gonna be stuck with them for a while. Danny at some point mentioned that uh, uh, people are saying that you know, like investment or relationship between entrepreneurs and investors like marriage, but he's saying it's actually way worse. Like marriage typically can dissolve with investors, so later on, you did a Series C, was led by Goldman Sachs, right? Not necessarily this traditional, um, not necessarily, I mean, it's a traditional investment bank, but not necessarily somebody who's from this VC world in the same way that Viola was, right? Why decide to go that type of route for a Series C? Was it just, you know, great name to have? Um, or why do you, why did you think that they were the right partner there? So like, in order to understand how, like, Obviously, at this point, it's kind of later on, you also kind of start to optimize for a lot of things, the optics, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, it, our round B was led by Insight Ventures from like, New York, like, very prominent file, again, like, very kind of well known in Israel. Uh, so, we already kind of have kind of like a blue chip American investor there. Like, with Goldman, yes, it does bring a lot of kind of respectability going forward. When you start to think about IPOs, things like that, these guys are definitely, can be kind of very helpful there. So, besides all the kind of things that I mentioned before, yes, like, these considerations around, you know, like, the name of the fund and uh, uh, where it can help you are becoming important. Like, one, well, it can... Again, Goldman is obviously a very big organization. They were able to help us around uh, kind of certain issues we have. Like we, we had an issue around like advertisement on a certain platform that we just couldn't resolve kind of internally. And that, that, that was like fairly, I would say like, I don't know, maybe half a year after Series C. So they were like very helpful around that. And again, not, not exactly, not directly the people that invested us, but they were able to, reach out to Goldman people in the other parts of the uh, kind of org and help around that. So yeah, I think uh, obviously different stages require different aspects. Mm. So you, you've been at AI from really very early on in terms of using it for video editing, photo editing, different techniques and making it simple. Um, and that's very much been the model that you've had. You know, now there's been this burst in AI over the last, you know, year or two that everyone's talking about it. You, know, you guys have been involved for a while, but everyone's really talking about it now. Like, where do you think the next steps are for AI when it comes to video editing, photo editing? Like, what do you think are some of the features that are going to be needed, you know, in that um, in some of the apps you have now? And like, where do you see the industry going? So do you mind if besides like for video editing, I try to kind of 
and talk a little bit about the world of computing at large, the contrast uh, the two. You don't mind, right? I can kind of, okay. Yeah, no, so, that's okay. So listen, I think there are, um, like one way to conceptualize what's going on, I would say like in the last year and a half, maybe since uh, summer 2022, is that there are like two like very big paradigm shifts that are happening in the world of tech. And one, actually the smaller one is around how we generate pixels, not only for photos and videos, like really kind of across the board for building virtual worlds, 3D graphics, uh, vector graphics, like, like really everything. And this paradigm shift is very disruptive in the sense that imagine that you completed your computer science PhD, uh, let's say uh, five years ago or 15 years ago. A lot of the algorithms, obviously things advanced, but they, they, they were quite similar. There was like an established way of doing it. If you wanted to create like a 3D graphics engine, you had like a kind of a textbook definitions of what you need to do, how you're going the whole way from creating like the geometry, the textures, and kind of producing pixels in the end. And now the whole thing is disrupted. And again, across different domains of computer graphics, like the way we did computer vision, image processing, video processing, uh, before isn't going to be how we're going to do it in the future. So that, first of all, it's extremely cool. I wasn't excited like that around computer graphics since, I don't know, maybe as a kid, I was able to create a circle on the screen. It's like really an amazing time to kind of be in this field. And I think we're going to see things that are, things still sound like science fiction to a lot of people, but we, they're becoming technologically positive, right? I think we're going to get to a point where you're going to pretty easily create virtual worlds kind of on demand kind of travel, travel and live in this world and the world are going to be kind of responsive and dynamic and uh, I don't know, think about like virtual worlds the way they're built now, something like GTA 6 right, it's a huge undertaking budgets and hundreds of millions, etc you almost can't imagine how it's going to look like when we will be able just like to imagine things like in them and obviously visit the virtual worlds that are created by you know, other people, etc. So I think all of this is coming. I mean, it's uh, by now it only seems kind of a matter of time because it feels like the core of the reflexes is there. And this paradigm shift is already, I would say, pretty huge. Still, I would say, like, relatively minor to the bigger paradigm shift in the world of computing is that our interaction with the machine is changing, right? Like, when we started as a humanity to build computers, initially, well, we had to connect the electric circuits together, right, in order to implement some kind of basic Boolean logic and stuff like that, and then we're able to figure out the machine codes and assembly, and then procedural programming came, and then we figured out functional programming and object-oriented programming, et cetera, et cetera. But long story short, during all these like paradigm shifts in computing, it still was um, kind of restricted to a, a certain group of people, right, to computer programmers that, uh, took, you know, like people, ideas, et cetera, and tried to kind of implement them in <clears throat> software and hardware. And I think that, that is like really about to change because we realize that with a large language models and kind of uh, our techniques around it, we're getting to a point where everyone will be able to kind of communicate with machines directly, meaning uh, basically write uh, 
software is going to be tailored exactly for you by specifying like the software using a human language, right? And I think that's going to be disruptive to a degree that's almost high, kind of hard to comprehend at the moment. When, for example, we're discussing like tech and entrepreneurship, etc. You could argue that a whole lot of what software companies sold in the last 40 years, so let's take as a milestone the introduction of a graphical user interface by, you know, Steve Jobs with Macintosh in 1984. So like these 40 years, a lot of what the software companies sold are um, product experience, basically like a user interface on top of the some kind of commodity technology. So think, for example, I don't know, about companies that are creating project management tools, the underlying tech, and again, I'm kind of dumbing it down to their point, but I think the point still stands. Like the underlying thing is maybe something like database, right? But again, you as a user aren't interested to write SQL queries, so they create a kind of a crazy amount of kind of product polish and UX on top of it in order to facilitate this interaction between you and database. And I think what's going to happen now with the LLMs that kind of gradually you'll be able to create the software for yourself. So like at the moment of our current software paradigm, we're seeding wheels, you know, like Riverside software, and it's like fairly static, meaning all of us are seeing the same software. There's like a certain degree of customization, but I think what's going to happen at some point is you're kind of your, like your agent that's going to be your kind of productivity and creativity sidekick. It's going to leap you across uh, different devices, and it's going to create software for you. Any kind of software you want, right? And it's going to be customized for you, etc. And again, we're not going to get there in a day, but I think it's kind of coming. And again, it's extremely disruptive because talking about tech companies, well, what are we going to sell? <laughs> Everyone has their local agent that kind of caters to their needs and kind of assembles a software for them. But it's obviously going to be way beyond that because. Well, and, you know, I think from this point on, we're getting into, like, really uh, futuristic singularity discussions that, uh, that I'm going to leave to other people. <laughs> so do you think that the Apple Vision Pro is really, like, like we're going to have this new device that's going to replace the phone potentially, and that's going to be this interface where, you know, where we see AI very much in its truest form? Do you think there's going to be a new type of platform that um, coincides with this revolution we're seeing now in the AI space? Is that, I think it is coming, like, if it's going to replace phones or not, like, we're, we're going to have, like, this AI agents kind of interacting us on every kind of imaginable platform, right? Maybe some platforms are going to be strong enough to run them on edge. Some of them, you know, will require backend. I think Apple, again, like, uh, I don't know if it's kind of a good analogy, but I sometimes think about, like, Apple Watch, right? Like. It took a while for this, uh, you know, like uh, to become a thing, but uh, you know, like by now, it's probably a bigger business than all of the Swiss uh, watchmakers combined. Again, I have no idea, but just like that would be my guess. Um, I think like with VR, it almost seems like Apple are uh, opting in for the same strategy, right? They kind of they're not promising like ton of units, like the price point is still high. And I'm pretty sure that these guys have, you know, like a product roadmap for the next 10 years. And I think at some point when it kind of matures enough, so it's going to move from being a prosumer device to a more consumer device and the form factor is going to get better, etc. So, yeah, I think we're going to get our virtual reality that, you know, it's, <laughs> a, it's 
kids we were like dreaming about that with some of us. So it seems like we're getting there. So what do you want to build now that you feel like you haven't been able to build yet at Lightrix that you think AI will really help catalyze? So this is like early next year, we're going to re kind of announce and release the first version of the product that it's kind of, let's say kind of built from AI and scratch. Because if you think about it, what happens with the AI at the moment, so they're like, I would say, companies that are adding AI on top of the existing features, right? So for example, we have like Photolib, one of our apps, or Facebook, so we're adding AI capabilities there. Okay, cool. Or I don't know, like Adobe adding like the new generation of the content aware feel and all things like that inside Photoshop. So that's like one way of doing things. It's clearly not going to be the next generation of product. It's like intermediate step of kind of unpacking the new. Okay, now we have like a newcomers, like the first kind of wave of AI startups that are, for example, taking large language models and building some kind of thin wrapper around them in order to kind of quickly extract a lot of value. So uh, that's cool. There are some startups who are like building their own foundational models, right? That, you know, better than the kind of open models or commodity models. And that's another way of tackling that. I think what we're going to start seeing like from next year forward, and again, it happens because we already have like this tech for a year and a half. So a lot of companies are included, start to try to figure out, okay, how products that are like built from AI from the kind of ground up are going to look like. And I think this stuff is going to be magical. So for us, it's going to be around, you know, creating and telling stories in a way that we just couldn't imagine before. So it's going to be, you know, around uh, video editing and world building. And uh, it's going to like really help you with the creative process from like the ideation to creating all the, uh, set and the pieces and casting the actors and then you know like creating the whole thing i think it's going to be super exciting and i hope you'll be able to see it really soon. <laughs> so based on like the current like economic situation that's going on in israel due to the war i mean has that been really impactful on you guys you know negatively has it been difficult to handle that or has operations kind of been same as a same as usual it definitely has been the same as usual. Electrics is still a fairly young company, so we have a lot of people that are inactive due to service and they are, for obvious reasons, aren't available at the moment. So it definitely had an impact. Um, at the moment, it's kind of still not clear uh, how uh, long it's going to be. Um, so yeah, like uh, I wish I could say that it has kind of zero input in all the speech, but that's just not the case. In terms of like the the IPO window opening up now, you know, potentially in two thousand twenty four, people are talking about that. Like you mentioned earlier on, you you know, thinking about a you know, potential IPO. Like of course, every business is thinking about you know IPO at the right time. Um, you know, do you think that that's something that you would be evaluating seriously? Um. So it's like, in terms of IPO readiness, we already like started with a while ago. There are like kind of things that you need to kind of put in place before you're ready to be a public company. And that has been going on for a while. In terms of the actual timeline, when we're kind of seeing the current situation in Israel at the moment, etc., I think like 2024 is a bit overly optimistic. So we'll have to aim at uh, maybe 2025. And 
further on. And uh, so in terms of the story, like initially we kind of positioned ourselves as a mobile first company that democratized creativity, etc. I think like the story now is going to be like way more around AI. And for that to be kind of more than a story, really want to show significant traction with our new generation of products. I think like next year, we're going to start seeing that. And, you know, if, if everything checks out, then maybe 2025 kind of should be a year where things are ready. But again, like, uh, given uh, my past experience with the things, it's like, you know, you need to do your thing, being ready, improve the uh, kind of company performance, building cool stuff. The macro of the world, the APO window, <laughs> that's, that's not up to me. So we'll just patiently wait for the right opportunity. So just one of the last questions that I have. Um, so when you're, when you're determining who to pick as, you know, as an employee for the company, right, you're trying to fill a role, you know, how do you generally judge and, and determine who the best person is? I mean, obviously, there's different metrics that you can look at, their previous experiences. How much of it is really based on the person themselves that's in front of you and the, and the kind of will and drive that they have? So listen, like, uh, I think the answer kind of differs across different stages of the company, right? I think, you know, like, now we're a company of kind of close to 600 people. so. I obviously can only be involved in maybe chart policies, but I'm not kind of directly participating in most of the interviews. I think first of all, it's very important when you start the company, like I really was extremely like involved in the hiring process. And uh, I think like the personal match to the company is extremely important at these stages, right? You're like small group of people. Your productivity is like very, impacted by you know like the temperature of the room like you're all in the same space you're spending like a ton of time together so again like that, that's extremely important and it, it is still important but so that's like the reason that we're kind of trying to make sure that all this the last world in like in terms of hiring is with the kind of teammates who are going to work with the person including managers, which is something, something kind of a more kind of debatable technique, but like we are trying to sometimes bring managers in order for their uh, potential future uh, reports to kind of get a feel if they're going to have, you know, like a great time with this person or not. So it's like kind of personal match across teams and again, extremely important. And uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's critical. Obviously, again, like there is a bump a bunch of other things, but I think with early stage startups, it goes on without saying, like, every person is super important, so, like, uh, with the saying we always had around it is, like, if there is a doubt, there is no doubt. You're feeling even, like, a pang of, well, I'm not sure about this person, just better say no, because early on, you're pay paying, like, a huge, huge price for these mistakes, and uh, even when you're kind of grow bigger as a company, you're still paying a huge price, but just like, if you have more revenue, so this price is kind of better uh, eaten, that's all. So just the last question I have. So where do you see the company going in the next five to 10 years? You know, obviously you mentioned you want this to be really AI focused now um, and, and build out, and it seems like you're going an entirely new direction with what, with what your products are, with AI designing that from the beginning. You know, where do you see the company going in the next five to 10 years in terms of products created or just, um, you know, new 
uh, just a new direction. So I would be like very kind of careful these days around 10 years, like after a year and a half, like the this and that. I'm not sure I'm in a great position to be like a profit for the next 10 years. But uh, I think there's like a tremendous opportunity on the table now to build like the kind of software that we really thought about. Like, I don't know, like really as a science fiction before, I remember reading, I don't know, like as a kid, Diamond's Age by Neil Stephenson, and uh, he describes where, like this magical device that kind of teach, teach you stuff and reacts to the world around you, and like the story goes around like you know, three different girls, and the device helps them to grow up as kind of part of the story, and it seems like, okay, we're kind of living this future, the stuff is actually becoming kind of plausible. So uh, you're right that things are kind of being disrupted at the moment, and uh, I don't know, like I kind of more focused on the opportunity side. WebOC will have to do things in a different way because a lot of the functionality that we implemented before is going to be commoditized because of the ad stuff. But listen, that, that's true for all the companies. And Google are saying that they have no mode in other open AI. I think that should give like a really cue to everyone. So it kind of boils down if you're just like excited to build things on this new tech. And we are super excited. So. We want to build like really magical products that will be just like fun for us and for people who are creating cool things kind of to play with. When you're seeing someone that, you know, works with something that you created with a tool you created and they are getting to some like really cool results that we're happy about, that, you know, for a tool maker, it feels good. Look, Zev, I appreciate you coming on. I think the story that you have here is a great story. I mean, you guys came, started with, with really not much of anything. College students, you know, had to have that courage and that passion to keep moving forward um, and build something and then, you know, limited budget, tested it out, scaled it. Um, and now what you're trying to do is lead a new wave of, of photo video editing, but also just build building worlds worlds and doing something different with AI, um, consumer focused. And I think you'll democratize that the accessibility to powerful AI tools once you bring these new this new product out. So I appreciate you coming on and I look forward to seeing what you'll do next. Well, it was a fun ride so far, and I hope it's gonna be a fun ride going forward as well. Thank you yeah. for having me.